Conversations with Catholic Voices. Tackling the tough questions with Daniel Noor and Catholic Voices Australia. Hello listeners, Uh, my name is Daniel Noor, a young Catholic, a convert to the faith and uh, wanting to solve and answer some of the difficult questions that I've heard so often uh, in modern society. We're looking at the major theological, social, political and moral problems that face the church today. And this is Conversations with Catholic Voices. Cradio, Sydney's greatest network for young Catholics, once again have given me a representative of the church. They have allowed me to, uh, for a time, talk to her about uh, some of these pressing questions. It's Danielle Lupi who is joining us today. Danielle is a mother. I have discovered she's also a singer and uh, she's a teacher. So she, she does it all. She is a jack of all trades. And uh, with Danielle, I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to be looking at the very timely issue of euthanasia. Uh, how are you, Danielle? Yeah, I'm really good. Looking forward to our conversation as always. So, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, uh, in its commentary on the Fifth Commandment, explains, Human life is sacred because from its beginning it involves the creative action of God and it remains forever in a special relationship with the Creator, who is its sole end. God alone is the Lord of life from its beginning until its end. No one can under any circumstances claim for himself the right directly to destroy an innocent human being. The teachings of the Catholic Church are loud and explicit in their statements on some of the most personal and difficult choices which pertain to a human's existence. How we marry, how we have sex and procreate, and yes, even die. All of this falls under its harsh, perhaps, exclamations. When personal choices are complicated by each person's unique circumstances, not to mention temperament, is there a need for what seems a heavy-handed intervention in not just a person's life, but the end of a person's life, a time fraught with difficulty and uh, a time where people are uh, are most uh, vulnerable, making their most personal choices, let's say. It is a very personal affair. Isn't this kind of intervention perhaps obnoxious? Well, Daniel, I think it's important to start with um, realising that we actually live in an era at the moment where, you know, um, statements like my choice, personal choice, autonomy and freedom of choice, my right, they're so paramount and so magnified at the moment that they're more important than another's right. And they're often more important than actually the greater good of society. These terms have become so widely used and reported that they're actually overshadowing the truth at the moment. And this widely used argument of being my right does not actually begin to reveal the impact that that choice will have on the person themselves, on their families or even on society as a whole. And I think it's really important to point out from from the outset of this interview that euthanasia is not actually about a supposed right to die but a supposed right to be killed. So if you have a right to be killed, that means that someone else has an obligation to kill you, which raises the question of what gives people the right to compel 
certain people like uh, doctors or nurses to be killers? What about their right not to be a killer? So what does this right to die or my choice say to, for example, the elderly or the sick or the disabled, the most vulnerable members of our society? Does this proposed law give peace of mind and freedom for them to choose life and a natural end to their life? Will they feel an overwhelming sense to end their lives so as not to be a perceived burden, uh, perhaps to family or society or even to our own healthcare system? The euthanasia legislation is almost always discriminatory, particularly against chronically ill people, changing their protected legal status to a status in which protection of their lives is contingent upon their will to keep living. So given that terminally ill people are prone to depression, that makes it quite dangerous. Depressed people can cope when they actually feel strength and support of those around them, especially from the medical system and staff. And I think also we need to look at, well, how will we view doctors in our healthcare system if euthanasia did become law? We can already see in countries like Belgium and Netherlands where euthanasia is legal, that the elderly actually have great fear of the doctors and hospitals and of being actually admitted into hospital. The doctor-patient relationship is no longer one of trust and support and nurture. Instead, elderly in these countries have been forced to carry cards that request being admitted into hospitals across the border instead. There have been many cases where patients have actually been admitted and have not come out alive, even though their illness was not terminal. And further, our doctors and nurses would actually be obliged under law to present euthanasia as an option if it were legally, legally available. And ill people would need their support and encouragement to keep going of the mm. medical teams and to keep seeking treatment solutions. Danielle, so, yeah. I'm going to let you finish your thought, but I would like to come back to you, what you said about the Belgium uh, patients who didn't leave alive, only because I, I haven't, I mean, I have heard that that things are different. And I know about, like, for example, the child euthanasia laws that I, I think it's maybe the Danish who want to push that forward. Um, Netherlands, yeah. In the, in the, in the Netherlands. Yeah. But I anyway, I, would, I just want to know how valid, what kind of maybe statistical evidence there is for this notion that, the, what this claim that you've made, that actually people are, you said... There are many peoples that are being killed against their will. Is is that a well-corroborated claim? Yes, I don't have particular uh, statistics, Daniel, uh, in front of me, but what uh, material that I've read through, uh, through papers and so forth are that when this law came about, you know, doctors had to record statistics, but as the years have gone on, they're not recording them, so we can't particularly say the amount, but it is estimated that hundreds of people um, have been persuaded or even pushed into, you know, receiving uh, euthanasia and ending their life, and sometimes mostly against their will. And, you know, loved ones have reported that their, their loved one has gone into hospital, not with a terminal illness, but has seen that their um, their medical care would be too um, costly, and so you know, have uh, ended the the person's life, not voluntary, involuntary, 
and and have lost their loved ones. And there's many reported cases of that. Mm. Mm. And so this is not an outright killing per se, so much as, I mean, when I mean not outright, I don't mean to say that the person was... Uh, it's a fine line, though, isn't it? I was going to say that they weren't somehow murdered uh, in in that very conspicuous way, but that they were persuaded and you might say coerced into changing their minds. Is that right? Yeah, well, I, I actually have read many cases where, no, it is murder mm. because it's against their will. Mm. But because of the laws being so, you know, you know, not checked and, you know, the, the agency's just not you know, keeping, you know, the credible um, eye on this, mm. you know, this is something that unfortunately is, is happening and this is, you know, our greatest fear in Australia in allowing something like this because this is unfortunately the slippery slope argument that, that seems to happen in, in these cases that once, you know, we open a door to this, it, um, it allows, you know, corruption and it, it allows, you know, the abuse of, of such a law to happen. Mm. I think, you know, just going back to what I was saying before, that, you know, for a doctor to offer euthanasia would actually undermine their role. You know, it's sort of like a football coach telling a weak team that it did not matter if they did not try so hard and if they didn't, you know, care about winning. You know, we have to really look at what, you know, what what are we going to be putting, you know, under our doctors? What, What obligation are they going to have? this and what's it going to do with their relationship with the patients i think of the hippocratic oath that doctors take that they're they're there to exactly prove the quality of life and and it's that that you feel would be undermined by their offering the possibility of an easy uh escape yeah i I think it's really you know easier easier I'll, i'll correct i think easier might be more um yeah and i think it's putting you know um doctors in an in an awful you know, compromising position that, you know, when they became doctors, you know, their, their whole purpose was to care, was to, you know, um, provide um, solutions, you know, and treatment and and possible cures. And suddenly, you know, they've got to go against that and actually end a person's life. And I, I just don't think anybody should be put under that, you know, that, that awful situation. I really don't. I think you also got to look at what this law would do to our nation. You know, how would we as a nation view life? Would it only be valued for what that person can contribute to our society? And for me, if that person is not deemed useful, are they going to be terminated then? You know, what what a scary country to live in. And we can already see this happening in, you know, places like Belgium and Netherlands and in three states in America where, where it's law. Euthanasia actually undermines political and economic support for palliative care. And all the jurisdictions that I've mentioned where euthanasia has actually been enacted, they also lacked really adequate palliative care and hospice care services. So legalised euthanasia raises the potential for a really profoundly dangerous situation in which the choice of euthanasia is the only affordable choice for some people. So is a country truly supporting a person's right or is it purely a financial reason? Before we get into some of these other implications, uh, I'd, like to, I'd like to query the consistency and the clarity of the Catholic, indeed the Christian view on the end of one's life. And I cite here a short article from the Guardian website by 
Heather McDougall. It's called The Catholic Church and Euthanasia. St. Thomas More, she says, uh, canonized in 1935 by Pope Pius XI, claimed in Utopia that euthanasia for the terminally ill was a central factor needed in the ideal society. And she goes on to say that in uh, 1980, the Church proclaimed the Declaration on Euthanasia, which states that intentionally <laughs> causing one's own death or suicide is equally as wrong as murder. Uh, the Church has always been ostensibly clear about things like this. But then... I mean, for example, the Declaration of the Immaculate Conception of Mary was opposed by some members of the church. Uh, it may have been the Jesuits, but I'm not, sh- I'm not sure. Uh, forgive me, listeners, if I'm, if I'm wrong on that count. But in any case, the consensus was not totally complete. Is it true that the church has always taught that euthanasia constitutes murder? Well, I think we need to point out, Daniel, that Miss Madougal has based her article on a fictitious work of mm. St. Thomas More, which is called Utopia. Yeah. The Utopia is a satire. <laughs> also, the Utopians in, in the book are pagan. So the Utopians permit euthanasia. There's no private property. Each household has two slaves. People eat in communal dining halls. Divorce is permitted. But those who engage in premarital sex will never be allowed to marry for their entire life. Adulterers are enslaved. Uh, there's married and female priests. And wives must confess their sins to their husbands once a month. <laughs> and so on. Imagine that. So Thomas More was no more advocating euthanasia than he was advocating any of these other things, which included no lawyers. And he himself was a lawyer. Utopia was written as a whimsical exchange of correspondence with a friend. So the book is is actually a response to a specific historical time. And around St. Thomas More was the Reformation and the beginning of the Church of England. And by writing about human vices and follies, St. Thomas More was actually revealing the foolishness and corruption of the society he was actually living in. So for centuries, the church has opposed both active euthanasia, such as a lethal injection, and passive euthanasia, like withholding non-burdensome life-prolonging treatments, such as um, an antibiotic, let's say, so in order to end suffering by ending life. You know, I think it's really important <laughs> in this case to, to point out that St. Thomas More was actually martyred because he supported the teachings and truths of the Catholic Church. So, you know, it's not that he was ever against the teachings of the church and that's why he wrote the book. He was actually pointing out, you know, the craziness of uh, the corruption in the society that he was living in and the choices that people were making. Yes, but then there is still my query about whether there are to be found any shades of grey, shades of grey in uh, complicated matters of 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 you know ending ending one's life the end of one's life so i think of the terry Chavo case now this is mm-hmm. the uh american woman who was kept uh on life support for a long time uh she wasn't in a comatose state but she was severely impaired the debate about what constituted aliveness was brought to the fore here aliveness 
Does the church distinguish between the deliberate termination of life and the artificial prolonging of life through life support machinery? Now, where can we draw that that line? When can it be said that this person uh, is uh, is dead or indeed yeah. is alive? Because are there not sometimes where the line is kind of blurry? Yeah. I mean, I think in your question you're, you're alluding to that the Catholic Church is often criticised for, you know, just wanting people to suffer. And, um, you know, this is, this is absolutely not true. The Catholic Church is at the forefront of, you know, palliative care and reducing suffering and, you know, medical advancement in caring for people that are suffering. Yes. But in this, this idea of we must, we must, we must, you know, soldier on in, <laughs> in pain yeah, at exactly. all costs. Yeah, which, which is, you know, is a, is a real misunderstanding of the church's teachings and the church's stance. But you mentioned, Terry Schiavo. The court ordered starvation and, and dehydration of Terry Schiavo in 2005 actually raises a number of issues. They raise moral, legal and constitutional and it was all about the right to life and the so-called right to die. And so I think the fundamental question of this case was actually moral and not a legal one and it was under what conditions, if any, may a patient, a guardian, uh, a medical personnel or a civil authority withhold or withdraw nutrition and hydration. So I think it's important that we talk firstly, what does the Catechism of the Catholic Church say? And I'll just quote, it says, Dis- discontinuing medical procedures that are burdensome, dangerous, extraordinary or disproportionate to the expected outcome can be legitimate if it is the refusal of overzealous treatment. Here one does not will to cause death. One's inability to impede it is merely accepted. So the decision should be made by the patient if he's competent or able or not, not if not illegally uh, entitled to act for the patient. Okay. So, so what you're saying there then in a nutshell is that the patient mustn't be arbitrarily kept alive after a certain point? Well, the key principle in this statement from the church is that one does not will to cause death. So when a person has an underlying terminal disease uh, or their heart or some other organ cannot work without mechanical assistance or a therapy being uh, proposed is dangerous or maybe has little chance of success, then not just not using that machine or that therapy results in the person's dying from the disease or organ failure they've already had. So the emission allows nature to take its course. It does not directly kill the person. Right. So if we look at um, Terry's case, in Terry's case, while there was some disagreement as to her exact medical condition, she was actually not dying. Mm. So when the other artificial means were withdrawn, so when the life support system was actually turned off, she actually continued to live. So the withdrawal of her food and her water was actually what directly caused her death. And this is why it's a violation of the natural law and the law of God and why it is, is called euthanasia. Mm. And, and this is what the, the church is, is saying that, you know, we must say, you know, the, to, to withdraw nutrition and hydration to allow the person to die or does it actually kill the person? See, if a person was actually going to die from an underlying condition rather than unnecessarily prolonging their suffering, it actually can be removed. 
So if I give you an example, in the last days or even hours of a cancer patient's uh, life, if, if a sick person's body is no longer able to process the food and water, then there's no actual moral obligation to provide nutrition and hydration because the patient will actually die of their disease or their organ failure before starvation or dehydration could actually kill them. I see. Okay. Uh, yeah. I think what this is tapping into, Danielle, is why? Why such an... And I, I think this is... Perhaps we've waited long enough now to really try and nut out the principle, if you will, of the church's teaching. When people are in severe and prolonged pain, mm-hmm. isn't it kinder, even noble, to undertake what must be a very difficult decision, a decision that some people would take courage, even more courage than, than ignoring the problem, which is to, yes, to kill a person, to, 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 to let them go rather than to, to leave them, to leave them to agonize. Have some not regretted their inability to expedite the deaths of their agonized loved ones? in what they might later deem a lack of courage? I guess what I'm asking well, is why. What, what, is, what yeah. is so important here? It's a good question, but I would actually pose a different one, a way of saying it, and wouldn't it actually be kinder, even noble and courageous to care for our loved ones until their life naturally ends on the earth? Mm-hmm. I think killing is never the answer or solution. And I think it's important to point out that with today's advancements in medicines, actually most people can experience little or no pain in their last days on earth. And as I mentioned before, Catholic hospitals are actually at the forefront in palliative care. Palliative care is provided to people who have a progressing illness that will lead to death. Cure is no longer the aim of the treatment, so instead Maintaining the best quality of life possible becomes their priority. Managing symptoms is actually a really important part of this. Palliative care addresses not only the physical symptoms such as pain and nausea, but they give an actual holistic approach. They look at their emotional, their spiritual, and their social needs. So it's a really multidisciplinary effect. And, you know, it's really taking that person on the natural journey uh, to to when their, their life ends. And I think it's important to point out here because you, you've mentioned it's actually the family members that I think suffer the most because we can actually control the pain that, you know, the ill people are feeling. It's actually the, the, the family members or friends around that are actually feeling probably the greater pain. And this is where palliative care is brilliant because it not only addresses the needs of the ill person, but it actually helps the, the, the family members as well. It assists them in the grief process and in coping, you know, with this journey as well. Because it can be a really difficult process. Just like, you know, in life we have to, to make choices that can be hard. You know, this is a difficult time to watch our loved ones die. But quickening their death is actually not the answer. It will not end your own suffering because I think you'll actually feel a lot more suffering in your life if you know you've actually been part of the decision to kill your mother or to kill your husband. I think that would be a greater pain to live with for the rest of your life. Mm. And, you know, I wouldn't want to live with that. uh, That that might be a kind of uh, theoretical pain there, but then there is the very real physical pain of of the 
of the victim of some kind of debilitating disease, you know, like a, a cancer of the bowel, for example, or something where people are really reduced to, uh, to become totally dependent. And also it is excruciatingly painful for them. So won't it ease the pain? Won't it ease the pain of, uh, of someone like that to, to, to end their, their lives? I, I, I still don't feel that somehow it's more reasonable when we, when we think about their suffering to, to let them continue to suffer. Well, I, you know, I hear you saying, I mean, we, we all, would like to live in a in a world where we have no suffering, but I I think that's a really you know naive uh, way of looking that this earth that we live in we will endure some suffering, and I think probably the greatest suffering that people will have to to go through at that time is a is is a suffering of letting go. So it's a letting go of our capabilities, our you know, our egos, our looks, our, you know, uh, abilities. I, I think it's a, actually a time of not only letting go, but I think it's actually a time of healing and I think it can be a real time of, of great grace. And I think it can, you know, from what I've seen, the experiences in my own life, um, family and friends, it's actually a time, you know, that's a, a blessing in a way to have time because some lives are actually cut short, as we know, but to have that time to actually let go and to have time with our family and friends, maybe to, you know, to fix relationships, maybe it's a time of forgiveness, maybe it's a time of really telling the person, you know, what they've meant. It can actually be, you know, quite a really rich time in, in everybody's life. Mm. I think it has a lot of good. You know, you, you mentioned the suffering, but yes, suffering will be involved, as, as I mentioned, but... As I said earlier, the, the advances in, in medicines now, a lot of the patients actually don't experience great suffering. Mm. You know, we live in a good time for that. Danielle, we thank you for your time. Uh, listeners, you're able to look up some of the resources that we used here today uh, through the magic of Google. <laughs> uh, we, we've obviously looked at the catechism, but we've also looked at a couple of uh, articles, one by Heather McDougall uh, at, on the Guardian website, and uh, we've also discussed the Terry Schiavo case, uh, and uh, uh, it, these, these are all accessible online. We thank you for listening, and we thank you, Danielle, for sharing with us. Thanks, uh, Daniel. God bless. And, and also, listeners, you can access lots of other um, equally interesting uh, podcasts that Danielle uh, and other speakers from Catholic Voices have uh, done with me uh, on Cradio as well, and not to mention the other wonderful podcasts on the website. Thank you, listeners. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Conversations with Catholic Voices. Stay tuned for more episodes at cradio.org.au and for more information on Catholic Voices Australia, visit catholicvoices.org.au. radio.org.au